Alex and I have been doing this podcast for a while and we have reviewed some of the most overwhelmingly white shows and still managed to relate to the material or the characters. So there's no reason why anybody shouldn't be able to watch Lincoln Heights and find something that resonates. You have no excuse. Watch Lincoln Heights. (laughs) Right. Seriously. Watch Lincoln Heights. Hello everyone, this is Alex. And this is Em. Welcome to the latest episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. This is the podcast for nostalgic Gen X and millennials and binge watchers of all ages. On this podcast, we'll be discussing what we love, what we hate, and what's just a bit problematic about the TV and movies that we're addicted to, and do a bit of rewriting where necessary. For much more exclusive content, become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode bonuses, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and so much more. Join the GBB family at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. On today's episode, we'll be diving into the trials and tribulations of the Sutton family, the stars of of the ABC family drama Lincoln Heights. Lasting two years and four seasons on ABC Family, Lincoln Heights chronicled the lives of a black L.A. cop patrolling one of the most dangerous areas of the city and how drastically his family's lives change when he moves them to the notorious Lincoln Heights community. The 70s and 90s were a golden era for black family sitcoms, but Lincoln Heights is one of the few black family dramas in existence. So how did the series manage to survive as long as it did on a network like ABC Family? And why do we still have such a soft spot for the series a decade after its cancellation? Stay tuned! All right, you guys, so here's some information about Lincoln Heights before we jump in. Um, Lincoln Heights is a drama and a family drama. It was created by Seth Freeman, and it aired on ABC Family from January 8th of 2007 to November 9th of 2009. It lasted four seasons and a total of 43 episodes. The show stars Russell Hornsby as Eddie Sutton, Nikki Michaud as Jen Sutton, Erica Hubbard as Cassie Sutton, Ryan Nicole Brown as Lizzie Sutton, Michonne Ratliff as Tay Sutton, and Robert Adamson as Charles Antoni. So that is our main cast of characters. And a recurring character that we see a lot um, would be um, Michael Riley Burke as Kevin Lund, Eddie's partner, Um, Chadwick Bosman as Nate Ray Taylor, and um, Alice Gregson as Sage Marika Lund. So these are the people that we're going to be seeing the most of. This is our core family and their extended network of friends and acquaintances. So let's jump right into season one. Season one was 13 episodes long 
And I believe that season one was their, yeah, season one was the longest season. So let's jump right in, Alex. Um, what are some of our main plots and subplots in season one? Right. So I'm actually really excited. So Lincoln Heights was a show that I had suggested, and I'm so excited that we're like talking about it because it's it's a show that definitely, I don't know that it lingers in the in our popular cultural consciousness, but it's definitely one of the shows that absolutely lingers in mine. Um, I'm always thinking about the show. I always go back to the show precisely because of like what we said in the intro that it's really one of the very few uh, black family dramas in existence. Um, uh, season one is a really interesting season um, because Essentially, season one will set up the show, but I think that you do feel a big shift in the show from season one to season two. So season one, it will be like a bit more of like, um, it's not, it, it pretty much operates as like a, as like your sort of standard police procedural with this like family happening, like in the sort of not background, but as like a secondary plot like we have like there's like a drug sting and um like a bank robbery shootout and I mean there are even parts of I think first season the first season of Lincoln Heights that kind of even feel like um 24 a bit in Mm -hmm. that like they're very like suspenseful like you have these plots that are super suspenseful and and um shot in this very like LA like cop gritty way. Um, but that, like I said, that will shift. But the reason that I'm so excited to talk about this show is because, uh, this show was so ambitious. This is an extremely ambitious show. I think there are a lot of things that this show touches on, uh, that in terms of thinking about black people, black life, that we haven't really seen a serious touch on since, which is, um, extremely significant and we'll absolutely get into it. Yeah. So we meet the Sutton family. It's a family of five. Eddie, the father is a cop. Jen, his wife is a nurse and they have their three kids, but they're living in this very cramped apartment with, there's like one bathroom. I think there's like two bedrooms. I believe one of the children, their son Tay sleeping on the couch in the beginning. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right. And the girls are the girls are sharing a bedroom. It's really cramped. Um, they can't afford to move anywhere else. And the police department gives an initiative to Eddie and the other cops. Basically, like if they they can, they'll give them like the money for a down payment on a house. But the house has to be in Lincoln Heights. And this former crack house is basically going at a steal. So he decides to take them up on the offer and get this house and basically renovate it. And, you know, talks his wife into the situation where they could have their dream house. Um, Their kids could all have their own room. Everyone can have their space. They can have a real kitchen. Um, you know, there'll be enough bathrooms for everyone. The only hitch is that the house would be in Lincoln Heights. And even then, like, something that's significant is that Lincoln Heights is Eddie's old neighborhood. Like, Lincoln Heights is where Eddie grew up. That's Mm -hmm. where he's from, right? We see that um, moving back here becomes as much of a culture shock for him as it is for his family, which is interesting to watch. Just in that dynamic alone, it's, it's already, like, this really... You, you, you're already getting this really layered 
story, this interesting story, right? This sort of prodigal son of Lincoln Heights returning to the the place of his former home. Eddie's in law enforcement. You know, he's a cop. So, and even, and so there's that aspect of it. And then there's this other sort of aspect of it. I think that we're always talking about among Black people and culture about, you know, in terms of thinking about the way and thinking about like, if we have to have police, how do we want to be policed? And here, um, and one of the things that we talk about is, you know, you police need to be living in the neighborhoods that they're policing, right? Instead of being in charge of a beat in a certain area and that they don't have to live in that area. Here, the show is like giving you an example of that. Right. So in 2007, like people are already like, this is something that people are talking about. This is something we're thinking about or that these writers are thinking about and they're very ahead. So like, that's super interesting to me. I want to talk about the sex worker plot. I think that happens at the like end of season one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The show didn't spend a lot of time on this, but when it, the time that it did spend on it was significant. So the family meets, Mama Taylor, the woman who raised Eddie after his mother was killed, and we meet Mama Taylor's daughter, Dana, who was Eddie's first love. They dated when they were like 16 years old. And we learn that Dana is a sex worker. She is specifically a prostitute or escort. You know, this is just what she has to do. She has to make a living she would like a more legit source of income, but she can't get it right now. And she has a young son, Jerome, that she has to take care of in addition to helping her mother out. And Lincoln Heights deals with class on various episodes, actually. We learned early on that although Eddie was raised in Lincoln Heights, Jennifer was raised by a a wealthy Black family. Her parents have a lot of money. Her father is a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. And because of that, it really impacts the ways that they deal with this revelation that Dana is a sex worker. Jen instinctively and unfairly judges Dana because she just assumes that, you know, everybody's got a choice and basically neglects the privileges that have allowed her to get into the career of her choice. And so this is one of the first times, but definitely not the last time, that the show has a very real, honest conversation about class disparity within the Black community. And I thought that the sex worker plot was really great because this is one of the rare occasions where sex workers have been humanized in popular media. Exactly. You know, Dana is a complete person and we won't leave Dana. It's not like Dana will have this one episode and then we will never hear from her ever again. She's a recurring character. She's not part of the regular cast, but we will continue to sort of check in on Dana and Dana's son, Jerome and Mama Taylor throughout the run of the series. And but she also is a very stand-up person. She's a regular, very regular person. In the episode, Cassie's trying to decide, like, when she wants to have sex with Charles, you know, thinking about that. And, and like any, I think, regular teenage girl, you know, she doesn't want to talk to her mom. So she talks to, like, another female adult. And Jen thinks that Dana's going to tell her, yeah, girl, just go out there and like, I don't know, do whatever. And instead, Dana gives her like this really measured, really fair, good advice. 
Right. Right. She's not just judging Dana morally because of what or the work that she does. She also just assumes that because she does that work, then she doesn't know how to properly parent, even though Dana has a child. Right. Um, oh, she's just going to she's just going to advise my daughter to just go out there and fuck whomever, wherever, however. And Dana's not that type of woman. Like she can she can separate her work from the advice that she's giving to a teenage girl. She is a good person. And I think this is something that the show does that I think is really, really beautiful. It doesn't just keep her as a character that's in the gray. Regardless of one's personal feelings about sex work, I personally am pro-sex work. People do this shit for free every day. In the case of the Dana character in particular, Dana's actually portrayed as a much better person than a lot of our other supporting characters. <laughs> I definitely want, I'm going to go on record and say that Jen Sutton and Eddie's partner, Kevin Lund, were like the most annoying people on this show to me. And I know Eddie, Jen is a wife character, and I see a lot of redeeming qualities in Jen, but literally every single time Dana, her family, or anything about like socioeconomic class comes up, Jen's responses are so cringe. Like she's a good wife and she's a good mother, and she has she has a like oh, an abundance of great qualities. And while I appreciate the way her character is written because I think that her responses are incredibly realistic, I don't appreciate that those are the responses. I want to talk about like two sets of people that we will see in further seasons. The first is our, the first main antagonist that we meet, Bishop, um, who's like a local drug dealer who we'll meet in other seasons. And the other becomes an ally of the Sutton family, Reverend Hammond, who at first Eddie pegs incorrectly as someone who's just like profiting off of trauma, this, you know, for pay community activist. And he pegs Eddie unfairly as another cop who gets off on taking young lives in the community. They really reach an understanding and get to know each other, and they become quite close for a while. Right, because at the end of season one, Eddie does, he isn't involved in, like, a shooting. He shoots someone that's trying to burglar the, like, the store. Yeah, this is actually in the beginning of season one. They hit us with this early. He shot this guy for a few reasons. He actually was reaching for a weapon. And more importantly, um, when Eddie got to the scene, his daughter, Cassie, was there, her soon-to-be boyfriend, Charles. So he already came into the situation from a, a sense of very real fear and panic. And then um, he tried to reason with this guy and he took out his gun or was reaching for his gun anyway. Eddie is invested by, investigated by internal affairs for all of this, shooting this gang member named Donnell. And it becomes a whole thing and it, it, it really colors the way the neighborhood views him for the season. He tries to make amends with Donnell's mother. She's not having it. The bishop doesn't believe him, and we see why. We meet another black cop in later seasons who is absolutely, like, the embodiment of police brutality. Right. Um, Powell. The neighborhood really has to get to know Eddie, and more importantly— Eddie and his family needs to get to know the neighborhood. Alex brought up, you know, policing the communities that you lived in earlier. This is something that prison abolitionists and police reformists have been talking about for literal decades, and I've, I've never seen it portrayed on television before. What I love is that 
particularly about Donnell is, you know, I think in a lot of shows today, like they'll have unarmed black kids getting shot because shows today think they're being deep or whatever. But the big thing that Lincoln Heights does that I don't think other shows really do is that, you know, he shoots Donnell, but we meet Donnell's mom. We meet like uh, his brother. We see like the family behind like that is an actual pain. Right. Right. That's just significant because yeah. it, it doesn't end with the dead person. Like when you're dead, like your problems are essentially over. The problems only really begin for the people in who are in your life who've lost you now, right? Eddie even attempting to make amends with Donnell's mother is significant because we have a string of cops on television now. And I'm not talking about like TV series. I'm talking about like real life news broadcast who will gun down a black kid, show absolutely no remorse, never apologize, don't have a word of condolence to say to the family. And when the black family is interviewed, you know, they're expected to apologize on behalf of the person that they've lost, which right. is just throwing salt in the wounds, very fresh wounds. Eddie doesn't ask Donnell's mom to apologize on his behalf. He doesn't try to justify with the, well, I had to do it. Like, he knows he had to do it, but he doesn't tell her that. He does. It's not the right time or place to tell her that. At the end of the day, she's lost her kid and he's still very much alive and that will never not be true. And he's aware of this. And he treats her like he would want to be treated as a parent. He doesn't see her as somehow different than him or her kids as, you know, largely different from his kids or the kids that he grew up with or whom he might have been if he hadn't left the neighborhood when he did. And the fact that the show does this, I I think really, truly sets it apart. This was like an ABC family show. <laughs> it was an ABC family yeah. show. This was essentially supposed to be for like kids. And you have the show confronting in an extremely nuanced, extremely layered way, these thoughts and ideas. And um, and it's, it's something to behold because I don't think other shows do it right still. The show only has 43 episodes. It is incredibly hard to accomplish this with less than 100 episodes. So the fact that people wanted to see more of the show for me is quite significant. My only point of contention, honestly, is that on Hulu, if you search for Lincoln Heights, it'll have it under dramas, but it also have it under black stories, <laughs> which it is. It is. It's very black, not just that the family is black, but so many things that happen on the show, you cannot like interpose those or swap them out for white people or even brown people because there a lot of the issues are like very black centric but it's one of the things that black artists and black authors talk about all the time you know you'll go to a bookstore and all the black authors will be in one place even though like their books are various genres what ends up happening is that if you don't go to that specific black section you'll probably not see their books right no, exactly. Uh, which is a problem because I feel like Lincoln Heights is a show that needs to be seen by everyone. And it's a show that I feel like is relatable to everyone. I mean, Alex and I have been doing this podcast for a while and we have reviewed some of the most overwhelmingly white shows and still managed to relate to the material or the characters. So there's no reason why anybody shouldn't be able to watch Lincoln Heights and find something that resonates 
You have no excuse. Watch Lincoln Heights. <laughs> right. Seriously. Watch Lincoln Heights. <laughs> and also, like, I think if you're, I think if you're a writer, I th- if you're a white writer and you are putting black people in your stories and you have not seen Lincoln Heights, honestly, already it's an F. Watch it. It's required viewing if you're doing that. Trying If you're learning writing or if you're, like, working to be like a writer looking, I definitely think Lincoln Heights is a required, should be on your required viewing. I so, agree. There's, it's, it's incredible how many social issues they've managed to pack in the four, you know, very brief seasons that they did have. All right, let's talk about Lizzie's kidnapping. So I mentioned our, like, our primary antagonist who we will revisit in later seasons. This gangster named Bishop comes out of the woodwork. He and Eddie butt heads because Eddie knows that he's behind a lot of what's going on in the community and that he's ordering, you know, other gang members to do certain things, but he cannot really prove any of it. And to try to get like Eddie off his back, Bishop orders two of his men to go into Eddie's house and basically like vandalize it and basically show Eddie that he isn't welcome there. But Lizzie, who had left for school early, returns to the home as this is happening because she forgot something. And one of the guys suggests kidnapping her, which is exactly what they do. One of the things I really loved about the show was how it didn't like forget about the younger siblings Tay and Lizzie and just focus on the older teen daughter, Cassie, and her relationship. Lizzie and Tay are fixers and their lives are important to the writers of the show and it shows. And one of the major plots with Lizzie is this kidnapping where basically she's got to use her wits and her charm and her negotiation skills to get out of the situation. And this is the first time when I really notice how much Lizzie is like Eddie. She's smart. She thinks on quickly on her feet. She knows how to talk to people. People with good intentions really like gravitate to and resonate with her. And Lizzie more or less like keeps her wits about her in this situation. Eddie ends up saving her, but after she saves herself. And it's really significant when this happens. We realize that Eddie and Jen's kids are a lot tougher than they give them credit for. Right. Which is later than reinforced when Eddie's like, okay, like we're, we're leaving. And, you know, all the kids are like, no, I'm cool here. Right. They're like, oh, we're good. We can, after the holdup at the the convenience store where Cassie and, and Charles were there, he was like, no, I was wrong to move y'all back here. We really got to leave. And then, you know, after the kidnapping, they're just like, we really got to leave. And a white family puts an offer on the house and everything like that. And they're just like, no, no, we're good. We're here. We're here to stay now. The worst is over, I'm sure. And sort of, and that kidnapping plot will, will take us out of season one and in to season two. So um, season one, good, bad, or basic? I thought season one was fantastic. Same. I think season one is good. There is like some, I think, copaganda, but I'm fine with it just because of the, the general premise. I think season one is, is solid. Yeah, I definitely got that copaganda vibe. And the only reason I let it slide with this show is because... Eddie isn't someone who crosses the line. He has a very strong moral fiber, and the show doesn't expect you to root for him when he does bullshit, because he doesn't. 
Right. And and I think because the show also has characters and actors within its narrative that question Eddie and question the police force in general and hold them to task, that right. I don't I also don't hate it. And and we have those actors sort of like in Reverend Hammond. Reverend Hammond will be someone who is very much about accountability. The show doesn't pretend that there are no bad cops because like, you know, we see Lund, we see Powell. It's not in NYPD blue. It's not in a law and order. <laughs> right. So it's not going to be like, stand behind the blue wall of silence, my brothers, or whatever <laughs> bullshit the police tell themselves. <laughs> so let's jump into season two. Season two was 10 episodes long. And season two was actually, it was it felt very different because like um, Alex said, it, season one felt more like a 24. And in season two, we delve more into the lives of Eddie's family and their day-to-day lives, not just like major things like kidnappings and hold up. We also meet um, Lund's daughter, Marika, who becomes like a recurring character on the show. And I really loved season two. Season two was one of my favorite seasons. So let's jump in it. In the very first episode of season two, a riot breaks out at the school and the riot has spilled out onto the streets. And so, so something I think that even is even super interesting about when the riot breaks out at the high school is that when when Eddie and the rest of the cops are sort of alerted, the police chief is very specific to say that it's not a riot that it's just some kids from the high school acting stupid. It'll always be like the details of things of this show that really like set it apart. Um, and then not only that, I think in the riot, we we see that this community, and, and not even just the riot, I think through the course of season one and season two, throughout the course of the series, really, um, but definitely in the riot, quote unquote, is that we'll see that this community is just a community like any other community. Cassie and Charles are trying to find each other, but, you know, along the way they encounter, like, little old ladies in shopping carts that they know, Mm -hmm. that they always, you know, say hello to when they go to the corner store. Or you'll have Jake, the guy who runs the hardware store. Like, he, when Eddie gets hurt, Jake is like, and, you know, a, a group of kids are, like, running up on Eddie. Jake comes and he's like, listen, I know your mom, I know your mom, and I know your mom. Like, what are y'all doing? Which really, really helps to ground the series and ground the world into something that is not set apart from any other place, right? Yeah, it doesn't other Lincoln Heights. It fully embraces that this is their community. Um, when I was watching the show, I, all I could think constantly was that the show really embodied the it takes a village ideology, not just when it came to raising children and everyone coming together to look out for them, to tattle on them when necessary, to help them, but also when it came to like looking out for and protecting your neighbors. You live here and this person lives here too. Nobody's going anywhere. So, you know, act right. So Cassie and Charles, there are a lot of drama and there will be a lot of drama throughout the the run of the series. You know, Cassie decides, like, she wants to have sex, and she's, like, really about it, and she sort of makes up her mind. Shout out to to Cassie. She takes charge of her sexual health, and she's, like, she asks Charles if he's ever, like, been tested, and he's, like, no. And she makes him go get tested before, like, she even wants to, like, do any of that. So, so that's really great. I enjoy Cassie and Charles's relationship because there are ongoing conversations about sex, sexual health, and, you know, eventually they actually have sex, which is interesting because we, 
a lot of black girls on TV really don't get that. Or if they do, it's not, it's not really showcased as something romantic or really something that the show lingers on in a significant way. Lizzie and Tay have really significant plot li- plots in like um, season two. And I mean, well, not super significant, but like they're never forgotten about. Lizzie gets a P.O. box to start receiving letters from Boa, who was one of the guys who kidnapped her, but like was kind to her and tried to save her in that situation. And this starts a whole conversation about restorative justice and forgiveness and things like that. Tay is a type one diabetic, which we learned in season one, but in season two, like during the riot, we see how this actually affects him. And it becomes a whole thing to like get him out of that situation and get him something to eat quick before his like blood sugar completely crashes. There's a really funny episode where he poses a 21 year old online to meet a 16 year old and gets caught in like a, a, a sex predator sting operation. They do really, really cool things to, like remind you like they exist. They're not just like filler children on the show. Right. <laughs> and it's so great because it doesn't exist purely as like, this idea for restorative justice, but also for Lizzie to come to terms with her own trauma around the kidnapping, right? Um, right. She does have a lot of sort of trauma and she's trying to to figure it out in her head. The show, I think, takes great pains to show that these letters for her are, are an outlet as well. Eddie is not on board. <laughs> He's not. And he and Jen's reactions are very justifiable. I'm going to say one sticking point I have with that plot, though, and this is one point of contention. In Boa's letters to Lizzie, he constantly says how, you know, um, um, her letters are what's keeping him sane and alive in there, and his letters mean so much to her. I feel like this is a lot of undue pressure to put on a child. Not to say that these things are not true, but now she's bearing the, the weight of, like, basically being the person who's keeping you afloat. Lizzie is a lot like Eddie. She's a fixer. And in trying to fix other aspects of of Boa's life, we really see that at the end of the day, she's just a kid. I think that forgiving Boa was great. It was a great plot. Humanizing him, even though he is a kidnapper and a gangbanger and a drug dealer, was also a really great um, plot because, yeah, he made a lot of bad decisions, but like people aren't just monsters. They don't do just like foul shit overnight. Right. Mm-hmm. There were roads leading to this. Having the audience, you know, relate to Boa, but also reinforcing, I think, this bigger idea that this show, I think, is interested in, which is cynical nature of poverty and like how poverty makes people desperate to do things that I think they never thought that they would do in their whole lives, you know? Um, right. I mean, outside of the Bishop character, whose real name is Khan, we really don't meet anyone who's like, yeah, I'm a gangbanger and I'm loud and I'm proud. This is what I've always wanted. (laughs) Right. And I think, and once again, I think that even that is significant as well. The fact that Bishop really is the only true, I guess, supervillain. Everybody that works for Bishop or is under Bishop is just somebody in a desperate situation. We talk about this later in the series when like we meet other gang members and later when a gang member actually tries to solicit Tay. So like they actually talk about how a lot of these, these boys are under pressure in their community to like, to like click up and join a gang. And like, even if they don't want to, you either, you're either a part of the gang or you're a target of the gang. Right. 
Right. And the pressure to recruit, right? Because, you know, mm-hmm. any everybody that dies or goes to jail, you know, those people need to be replaced. It's like any other sort of extremely exploitative, violent business, right? Right. Exactly that. So, you know, it it already deals with these really hard things. In this season, season two, a gang member named Desmond, played by Sinqua Walls, of, of he was on Power, um, he was on Teen Wolf before that. He's been everywhere. But he tries to intimidate Tay into joining this gang. And Ruben saves Tay. And then later, Eddie, I would probably say this was the one time he crossed the moral line. Eddie and Powell, this... Of this black cop who's like really has a hard on for police brutality, humiliate Desmond in front of his boys to get him to back off of Tay. Desmond retaliates by bringing a gun to the unveiling of a mural that Cassie was painting, takes a shot at Tay, and Tay is saved by Ruben. Ruben is another great character be- when we talk about restorative justice because Ruben killed Eddie's mom but ended up saving his son, which is obviously a very complicated set of emotions for Eddie to have. I want to reiterate for the audience, like in between all of the, you know, what we're talking about with these plots and and these ideas, there's stuff like the kids throwing like a party at the house and like, and getting into all this sort of other like goofy, like day-to-day trouble, you know? Yeah. Throwing a party at the house while their parents are away and like, you know, joining the school basketball team and like all this sort of like normal ass shit. Um, and that is what makes the show the show so significant. It, the show really does find that balance between all these big, heavy ideas and then all and then all this shit that's like super fun, right? Right, right. Um, we never forget that this is a family show. That this is a family. That these are children. That Eddie and um, you know Jen are a couple. Things like this that that kind of ground us back to the show's like central focus on family and community. One of the, the, the large, well, one of the last large plot points of season two is the car accident that Charles and Sage get into. It's pretty bad accident. They're both trying to run away. It's revealed prior to this, that one of the reasons that Charles hates his stepfather, Mac is because Mac tried to molest him. We definitely don't talk enough about sexual abuse of boys in TV in general. And Sage feels that distance from her father, who was absent for most of her life, and she wants to run away too. And they get into this horrible car accident. They were both in critical condition, and Sage doesn't even recover by the end of season two. She's still in a a medically induced coma. But Charles gets out of the hospital. He has a broken leg, but he gets out of the hospital at the end of season two. And him and Cassie, you know, decide to be on again for good. Because their drama is endless. So let's talk about Charles. <laughs> let's talk about Char- like Charles just as a character for a minute. Charles is an interesting character. He's like our only, um, not our only, but like probably... Uh, he's like one of our more prominent white characters on the show. The white people on the show are, are few. It's like uh, it's like Lund, Charles, and Sage. Sage is interesting, and Lund is you know he's Lund. I don't know what do you want from him, but 
Charles is interesting. So Charles is an interesting figure. We, and then I think in the general cultural consciousness, we talk a lot about the poor white people. And I think whenever white people do like some sort of like weird, dumb shit, like they're always, they they like to sit of like, oh, well, I grew up in this poor community next to the, the blacks. So I too am, you know, something or whatever. I'm Negro adjacent. Adjacent. Um, Charles is the character that actually, like, explores this idea. Um, Charles is low income, right? His mother, he doesn't know yet who who or where his father is. His mother is neglectful. She's sort of in and out, but it's because she's working. But even then, he's also working to support them, right? Her income still, like, isn't enough. Um, so he's working and he's going to school. He's grown up poor. He's growing up in the neighborhood. He is, the Charles character is super interesting, uh, just cause of, I think of how he relates to the Sutton family. Um, Charles doesn't have family. And I do think part of like what drives Charles or like why he's attracted to Cassie and Cassie and, and this sort of unit is also something that we've talked about on other shows with other characters about this, this desire to watch a family up close. It's actually what we talked about on Parenthood with regards to Alex. I think Charles is the flip side of that a little bit. Yeah, Alex and um, the the girl Dylan that Max had a crush on, they, were, they both just wanted to be around the Braverman family. And um, Charles is a lesser degree of that. Charles really is in love with Cassie. I think her family is just like a bonus. Like he would be with Cassie even if she had no family, but his, her family gives him the sort of grounding and this, the, the sort of sense of belonging that he's never really had. Cause he and his mother have a very tense relationship on account of her working all the time. And then her always taking up for her, her, her boyfriend or excuse me, her, her husband, her, um, his former stepfather, Mac. So it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, she doesn't even believe what he's accusing Max of, Mac of all of this time until Cassie brings her Max arrest record, like prior arrest records of, you know, lewd acts on a minor and things like that. Right. Poor Charles. Right. Like, you know, like he's your kid. And why would someone lie about that? <laughs> also, season two is when the music on the show really starts to come up in a big way. Yeah, we had we had a lot of like guest musical stars at this coffee house called Revolution, um, which is it's interesting because this is definitely an idea that One Tree Hill started off with, like having musical guests perform as themselves on the show. Um, And then Lincoln Heights took it as well. It didn't last super long and they didn't have the catalog of artists that on One Tree Hill had, but they had some really great artists. Like, um, they had, uh, Chrisette Michelle was on an episode. Trey songs is on an episode. Um, Solange was at the prom episode and later seasons. We see a lot of like really, really interesting artists that were on the come up back in 2007. Yeah. Um, like, and then, <laughs> like, Oh, I forgot that person even existed. Like Elliot, you mean, I was like, Oh, that's great. Also season two is when we meet like Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, she's Cassie's boss, and they 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 they're in this brief thing during her breakup with with Charles. It's actually what facilitated the breakup with Charles was Charles's jealousy. Yeah, he's get, he gets weird and like jealous. Um, and listen, that'll kill you every time. <laughs> um, that'll mess up your 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 shit. And but then he's like, like, but then he's mm. also like a weird actor in that like. There's, there's this, there's this, like, a, there's this strange plot with, uh, Luke and Tay and, like, a recording studio, <laughs> and I'm still not sure what it, I mean, I, I understand the point was to be, like, the music business is shady, but I don't think I understood, like, the, the bigger point. Do, do you know? I honestly, like, of all the episodes, I would say this was the filler episode. I don't know why it was here. I don't know why we needed to see this. I don't know what role Luke was playing. Like, it was very clear that this guy controlled him or had something on him. We don't know what the hell it is. Um, Luke ends up leaving when his band gets, like, a three-album deal. So, clearly, he wasn't that attached to this creepy record producer guy. But I think the the point was supposed to be like a cautionary tale. Right. <laughs> I, yeah. I was like, I think it's supposed to be a cautionary tale, but I don't get like, yeah. Cause like, that's the only thing it's like, I was like, wait, is this cre- is this shady guy like funding everything? Like he's the sort of investor. So mm-hmm. that's why I think there was some, okay. So like, it's sort of like famous. It's sort of like famously understood that like, there are a lot of like record labels, um, that were essentially funded with drug money. Um, like you would have like, and it's specifically like hip hop labels that were first started from like the investors were like drug kingpins and they would use like the, and then the kingpins would like launder their money through record labels. And that's mm-hmm. why sometimes you'll see like hip hop artists on like FBI watch lists. And I'm wondering if like this was supposed to be like, that plot was supposed to be like a nod to that, but then it never quite like was as realized as everything else on the show. Right. I mean, if that's where we're going, like we're going to need some follow-up you guys. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, be- just, it's interesting. Cause like when Eddie comes into the record studio, I was like, give me this bullshit contract. And the, the guy's like, he signed a contract. I'm like, he's 14. He didn't sign shit. Like, what are you talking about? Like, even the shadiest of the shady criminals knows that when the kid's parent shows up, like, it's done. It's a done deal. Maybe you can trick a kid to thinking that contract is legit, but you can't fool an adult into thinking that. Really quickly, before we sort of give a grade and move on to season three, let's talk about Powell for a bit. Because season two is, like, when we meet Powell. Um, yeah. So, Powell's an interesting one because, like I said, he is a cop who never met a, a criminal that he didn't feel like brutalizing, basically. Um, right. He, 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 when we first meet him, he shoots someone whom he claims is going for a gun, but definitely was not. And we learn at the unveiling of Cassie's mural that his daughter, Annabella, um, was a victim of gun violence. And so this gives us an inkling of why he reacts the way that he does to criminals, especially gangbangers. Pal is definitely on like the, the, the darker side of gray, but the show even tries to humanize him. And basically when um, he and Eddie are partnered temporarily, Eddie becomes something of his conscience, conscience the way that Reverend Hammond is to Eddie. 
Right. Powell is probably the closest will come to a black, like Republican figure without the show sort of outright saying it. Oh yeah. He, he reeks of build that wall. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, he's definitely that figure. And, and Powell is kind of like the embodiment of that type of cop figure. He absolutely like, maybe we share skin color, but these are not my people. These are my community. I don't have anything in common with these animals or lock them up. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. And in, even then when Powell sort of, when Powell gets into like a bit of, of trouble um, and Eddie then has to make a choice about does he protect Powell or not um, in terms of the questioning after it's, even even just posing that question is so even just the writers writing that it poses this question of like you know in terms of Eddie having to lie for Powell it's like it's not just a blue brothers type of thing it's like do you protect another black person in this inherently white supremacist organization or do you not uh, right. like what's, what's the answer? And I, and there isn't, there isn't an easy one. I don't think. And when Eddie does the right thing and he tells exactly what happened from his point of view, it doesn't win him any points. Um, and even when his partner Lund will agree, like it's the right thing, he'll be like, you're stirring up trouble or you're making trouble for the both of us. Things of that nature. <laughs> right. And, and Lund will, will always beat that drum. Um, will always beat the drum of why, oh dear, oh Eddie, why do you have to just care about these people? Like, why do you care about any of these people? That'll always be Lund's sort of like zero. Right. It's, uh, which is sad, but that character and I felt, London Powell, I felt were two characters that were written very, very realistically. I don't think there are a lot of cops like Eddie, but I do think there are a lot of cops like Kevin Lund and Officer Powell. Same. What do we think of season two, Alex? Good, bad, or basic? Uh, another good for me. Um, I think beyond that sort of weird, um, beyond that weird, like Tay signing this shady music contract plot. Um, I think all these episodes are solid. I think Reverend Hammond dying is like was you know it it, it did hit me emotionally, and even just Lizzie in the aftermath of it, Lizzie sort of losing her friend in Reverend Hammond and all the stuff that happens in season two. I love it. I think it's a solid good. Yeah. I thought that season two was very good. Seeing the the community come together to mourn Reverend Hammond was really, really beautiful too. Yeah. I think season two is my favorite season overall. I'm not going to lie. It, I think it was like the, had like the best standalone episodes and the best pacing of the the plot lines that like you know span the entire season. Let's talk about what made season three so great. When we open in season three, Charles is fully recovered, leg is no longer broken, but Sage is still in a coma. You guys. Yeah, poor Sage. In season three, we open with uh, Eddie and Jen taking a very well deserved vacation because shit's been crazy and but while they're away the house gets broken into again because this poor house cannot see any rest which listen to the show's credit they will like come up with a reason of why this house is like continuously broken broken into um the house is broken into by sid uh who used to live in the house um 
or, or her and her family used to own this house before it became run down. So, so essentially she was, Sid was the one that was in the house the first time when the house was sort of like raided uh, as a, as a drug house. Right. So I love, love, love this entire Sid breaking into the house for a lot of reasons. And it actually spills over into season four, but I want to go back to season one real quick in season one, when Eddie and Lun raid this crack house, Lun says something very significant. He says, can you believe how these people live? Which I'm sure was like a dig at the fact that it was a bunch of addicts living in the house, which is bad enough. But from the way Eddie looks at him and the way I'm looking at him could easily be interpreted as like a racial comment. And Sid clearly hadn't forgotten it either because she actually talks about it when she's in the house, when she and her boyfriend and one of her friends break into the house. She says... I can still hear him saying that. Can you believe how these people live? It's something that made a deep impact on her. And it's part of what's fueling her rage. She's looking for something. And granted, she's still she's still an addict um, with her and her boyfriend. Also, the friend that breaks in with them is a very young Je- Jesse T. Usher, who will, um, who will go on to play... Uh, who will go on to be in Survivor's Remorse and is also a character on The Boys, which we've talked about um, on our Patreon episodes. And it's cool to like see him here. He's such a baby, like in this episode. Oh my god! We're, we're gonna ha- when we finish these these uh, seasons, we're gonna have to talk about all of the people from really hit shows that were like that made an appearance or were a significant it's, character on this show. It's crazy. It's really crazy. Like shout out, like once again, shout out to. Um, casting and and on Lincoln Heights they had the eye they just knew who was who was going to be who was going to be that person <laughs> afterward yeah she's looking she's looking for something and something that i love about this opening is that yes they they essentially the show goes back and really humanizes Sid and humanizes her and and we get a sort of full scope of who she is and what she wants and and the reason for and the legitimate reason for her anger. This was her house. The house was owned by her her grandmother. It was her family's house. And when it was raided in that, um, you know, that that raid that, you know, I can't call it a drug bus, but basically it was a it was a drug house. It was a, a crack house. So they raided it. They scooted everyone out. They herded them all out. Eddie got the property. And, you know, renovated it, refurnished it, and moved in, giving no thought to the people who'd been there prior. And she's angry because not only is one of the cops who did this to her living in this the, the house of her family now, but she feels as if there is a family heirloom. She assumes it to be money that is stashed somewhere in the house. It's essentially a comment on Black gentrification. Right. Um, What they did was a form of gentrification. They got the house at below market value because it was a crack house. They got the house at below market value because it was in the Lincoln Heights neighborhood and the property value had plummeted over the many years. Um, They got the, they were able to pay in their mortgage less than they were paying in that Mission Vista apartment because of the circumstances surrounding the house in the neighborhood that the house was in. They absolutely profited from, you know, the circumstances of the house. And the show kind of puts a highlight on that. 
Right. It puts a highlight and it gives a face and I think a, a story to the people who are lost behind, who are who are left behind. Eddie does what he does best. He talks to this girl. This is something that he and Lizzie are very good at, like talking people into doing the right thing. And basically tells her, you know, not, don't throw your fucking life away. I won't shoot if you won't shoot. We'll walk out of here calmly. And he keeps his word. And um, Sid is arrested. But that is absolutely not the last we see of her. We see her, meet her again in season four. And it is, it, it's such a well done, I feel like, uh, closure. She gets a really great character arc, especially for a recurring character. She does. She gets a... It's an excellent closure for this series and, and for her, and, and it's wonderful, and, and we'll get to it. When Eddie and Jen are trying to race home when they realize that there are intruders in their home and that Cassie's at the house, he forgot his badge at the beach. And that's when Eddie has to learn for the first time in his life that a Black cop is Black first and will be treated accordingly. And I felt like it was such a... It was it was a significant moment, even though it didn't last long, because Eddie kind of got that wake up call. He was just like, I'm just going to show him my badge and we'll be on our way. But who are you without that badge? You're just another Negro. So also in this season, uh, Sage wakes up right in the nick of time, too, because old girl's mom was about to take her off that medically induced coma. (laughs) She was. Hold the plug. Lund was like, no, you can't do this to my baby. And her mom was like, listen, this is expensive. (laughs) And listen, to the mom's credit, like, to the mom's credit, the mom is like, listen, I've been here before. I went through this with, you know, she named some other family member. And she goes, and it was was awful. It was awful to watch them sort of waste away in body, knowing that they were never going to come back. And then, yes, also, in addition, they're, they're, only for them to still die. Yeah, in addition, these exorbitant medical bills. So, Right, she's not just some monster who doesn't give a fuck about her daughter. And we can talk about how, you know, he he he's willing to fight for Sage and keep her on this um, medically induced coma, which is essentially life support. But he, like Alex said, he'd never been through this, but his, his ex-wife had. Three significant things happened this season, and we can talk about them in whatever order. Um, we meet the new church reverend, Reverend Kingston. Charles and Cassie finally have sex, and Lizzie goes to a new prestigious private school. Right. Um, and those are all really significant. So this is also the season where Solange performs at the prom. It's really, I just, you guys, I just, because I was so like, I did not remember that happened. And when I came up on the episode and I'm watching it and then it's like Solange, I was like, wait, what the fuck is Solange doing on this show? Right. I thought y'all were poor. Right. Like I thought this was a poor community. <laughs> like, how do you guys afford to pay Solange to, to be, to perform at the prom? And then, like, not only that, she's performing, like, a Hadley Street Dreams records. I was like, what is going on? This is such a blast of the past. The Kingstons, the Kingstons are super, super interesting because they provide a direct contrast to the Hammonds, whereas the Hammonds were these people who very much cared about the community and the show coded as, like, caring about this community, caring about how this communities being policed, caring about um, access to health and, and food and and all these things and 
in providing support. The Kingstons are definitely like your your Kanye Wests and your Joel Olsteins and your um, I don't know who was that pastor who was like pay for God wants y'all to pay for like my new private jet. Who was that? Creflo Dollar. Yes. Creflo Dollar. Like the the Kingstons his, are his name is literally Dollar. Y'all knew better. <laughs> I love the Hammonds. Um, now the Hammonds, I don't believe they had any children, did they? Or their children were like adults. I'm not sure which one it was. Um, Reverend Hammond's wife is still a big fixture. I love this actress. Um, Mrs. Hammond is played by Tina Lifford who um, also went on to play Renee Trussell, um, Jasmine's mom on Parenthood, and is currently playing Aunt Violet, um, Violet Bordelon on Queen Sugar. So she's she's an OG. She's been in this thing. And um, to the show's credit, she is still a significant recurring character, even after Reverend Hammond's death. But the Kingstons are absolutely nothing like the Hammonds. Reverend Kingston in particular is really in it for the money. Um, his children, Stacy and Devin, are really cool. And in their interactions with Tay, Lizzie, and Cassie, we really see them as great people. Reverend Kingston is really just here essentially to pull a real estate scam. Like he's in a, a, a poor community and he's trying to buy up some shit and, and let money change hands. <laughs> to the show's credit, they never um, let up on the Kingstons. So Stacy is, is uh, gay. Yeah. She comes out because she goes, she does ask the other girl to prom. We don't really fully get to explore like Stacy's sort of predicament, but we do see Cassie be like a good friend to Stacy um, and vice versa. And it's, I think it's just unfortunate that we don't get, we don't really get to spend more time on this black female, like LGBTQI experience, particularly being a, a girl who's closeted and in a religious family. Right. Um, the show tells us that her brother already knows she's gay. And he says as much. And then when the Kingstons first have dinner with the Suttons before Eddie realizes what type of person Reverend Kingston is, her father makes this comment where, for me, that was a dead giveaway that he knew that she was gay, where he he asked Cassie, do you know any nice boys he can set her up with? Um, most fathers, especially religious ones, aren't trying to set their daughters up on dates with boys unless they know that that daughter is interested in girls. This is just my experience. Stacy asks, well, attempts to ask this girl to the prom, but then the girl tells her she already has a date. And then she asks her to dance at the prom after her father, who's one of the chaperones, tries to push her to dance with a boy because, again, he knows she's gay. And it's really not an issue of her coming out, but her family, her father and her mother specifically trying to keep her in the closet. And she dances at prom with this other girl in front of everyone and, like, the pretense is up. The jig is up. Like she's not faking the funk anymore to please her family. And we really see like Stacy grab her freedom in this very ballsy way, which I thought was really great to watch. And she's a black girl and she's religious and she's dark skinned and she's all the type of um, lesbian representation that we really don't see on television often. Right. And, you know, it, it's getting slightly better, but I think even now if we, if we see black lesbians on television who are dark skinned, they're they're usually studs or in, in their mask presenting, mm-hmm. which is fine. But like, um, I think they're 
but I think there's also just a knee jerk colorist reaction to always associate dark skin with, with masculinity. Um, absolutely. So the fact that this, so the fact that Stacy is dark skin, a lesbian and she's femme is a, is a big deal. Right. Cause when we do see femme characters that are black, they're very light skin or biracial or multiracial. And, I think that's significant because just like we associate dark skin with masculinity, we associate lighter skin with femininity. And who says that studs can't be high yellow? Who says that femme girls can't be dark? <laughs> right. 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 Um, so, and it was, it was kind of like a femme on femme situation too, where their, the girl that she had a crush on was also femme, which, um, we hadn't seen a lot of at that time. I think the only representation of anything like that was probably like on the L word. Usually lesbian portrayals on television are always like a femme for a stud. And like, it's never two femmes or two studs. Like two studs is almost never seen, which is ridiculous. But we, we got to see a lot with Stacey King, Stacey Kingston. Unfortunately, the character leaves town, her and her brother, when Reverend Kingston does. So we don't see them in season four, but Devin makes a huge impact. So let's segue right into, I want to talk briefly about Lizzie's experiences at her private school. What do you think about that? Interesting. I like that the show, it's thinking about this idea of education versus schooling, that just because you can go somewhere where like the schooling is better, doesn't necessarily mean like the education will be better and doesn't necessarily mean that like you won't find other problems. I think it's significant that first of all, all these kids are going to bubble, that, Ked- that Eddie is, wasn't even sending any of his kids to private school from the jump, that they all go to public school. And that they're all getting reasonably great educations. It's just that Lizzie's uh, gifted. I even like uh, before where Lizzie's like, I like my school. I like being here. I don't want to leave. And even Jen, who had that private school experience, is sort of like, "Eh." they come with their own set of issues and own sets of troubles, which they do. and, And we see. And it's great that the show looks at. All of that to say that Lizzie's new school is racist as fuck. And only wanted her because they needed a great basketball player to round out their weak-ass team. (laughs) And she was not going to allow herself to be used. And this girl got herself right back to um, Lincoln Heights, which was the better option for her. Um, So let's talk about two more significant plot lines in season three. The first is Charles's boss, Serena. And the second is Eddie's discovery that Dana's son, Nate, is his son. Ugh, do we have to talk about Serena? That was such a dumb we, plot. We have to, because they don't, they never stop doing this shit. But Lincoln Heights is the one show they handled it correctly, where the older woman is making these aggressive moves towards a young man, and he doesn't see it as a compliment. He doesn't think that she's going to teach me so much. He doesn't feel special from the attention. He realizes her as a predator that she is and rejects her, which is significant. Which is significant. We don't get uh, a lot of stories where, like, where a white woman is in a position of power and, like, the show is taking a definitive stance on the fact that she sucks. And it's interesting because I think this is something, even this whole, even that whole plot is something that I think MRAs like go up about. You 
feminist bitches don't care <laughs> when um, you you don't care when like men are like you know uh, preyed upon rah 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 and like here it is in real time and like here we care see. Right. And it's, it must be noted that they literally only mention men being sexually harassed or men being raped or men being sexually abused when women are talking about our own experiences. Um, they use it as a derailment tactic and not something they actually give a fuck about. <laughs> right. Because, like, we give a fuck about it, too. <laughs> and like right. I said, here, we care. Um, yeah. And it the plot is particularly... This plot is particularly egregious and it, it it hurts in a sense to see because like we said, Charles is poor. Charles does not have a lot of outs. I mean, Cassie is going to be fine. Cassie's mom is rich and, you know, they have those connections and, and Cassie will go to, to a fancy art school and, and Cassie's aunt in particular is all about the bag, which we will right. talk about a bit more in season four. So Cassie will probably be okay. Charles is poor. Charles is, um, and you know what? If we think about it, Charles will also be okay, okay when we get to season four. But like uh, at this point, you know, um, in the narrative, Charles doesn't have a lot of options. He doesn't have a lot of ways out of this community. He doesn't have a lot of prospects. And this sort of design opportunity, because Serena comes along due to Charles applying for this design internship work thing and he gets in and she is assigned to him to be you know his mentor and this is a big deal because this could mean real prospects outside of high school and real prospects in his life and 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 it's ruined because she's a predator right she's not just a predator She's a manipulator, right? We see her go through lengths to try to pit Charles against Cassie and Cassie against Charles, meanwhile pretending to care so much about both of them and their relationship. Right. She she tries really hard to pass herself, not tries, like, I mean, she succeeds, uh, to pass herself off as this sort of big sister, like, not even big sister, like, but yeah, big sister, like aunt type figure um, to both of them, it's especially to Cassie is like being really interested in her work and her art and her trajectory. Um, not only is Charles's girlfriend but as like, you know, woman to woman. So the fact that she does turn out to be this nefarious is so is really ugly. It's not a mystery what's happening with Serena. Like it might have we can see how Cassie and Charles are fooled, right? But we, the audience, are privy to every conversation she has with each of them. We spot her lies and her manipulations early on, so it doesn't feel like they're trying to give, like, like, you know, um, rush to the finish line, um, so to speak. When she is exposed as what she is, like, for us, it feels like, okay, about time. So when the season ends, two things happen in the earthquake that hits um, um, California and hits that area, um, Eddie figures out that Nate is his son and has to give him a blood transfusion since Dana doesn't share his blood type. And when performing this transfusion um, at their house, Jen um, learns that Eddie is Nate Raid's father. So she and Eddie figure this out on the same day. Dana had only just recently told Nate Ray to prevent him from re-enlisting in the army because she really doesn't want her son to go back. 
And during the earthquake, the hidden room in their house splits to reveal yet another hidden room. Um, one of the bricks comes loose and Charles finds money in the attic and takes it. And I don't blame him one single bit. <laughs> yeah, like you feel like it. Like, he shouldn't take it, but, like, you also don't really blame him. He's in a really, like, Charles is in a really bad situation. Um, we mentioned that he's poor, right? Yeah. Like, he's, you guys, he's, they are working poor. Season three, good, good, bad, or basic. Season three was very good. I, I like it. I think it's good. All right. So let's jump into season four. Season four was the last season of Lincoln Heights. It was also 10 episodes long. And... It takes us to a couple months after the earthquake. The family is back in a one-bathroom apartment. Charles still hasn't told them about the money. He isn't blowing it all. Like, kudos to Charles for not feeling like he hit the lotto and buying a new car. He's being very mindful of the money while he and Sage are, like, stuck in FEMA housing. They're, like, stuck in these FEMA apartments, and he's using the money very, very carefully. He hasn't deposited it in a bank, but he keeps it close to him in his toolbox, Nate is a police officer now, and Jen's father um, basically helps the family get a new house, which he isn't very shy about telling everyone that he's doing. And he clearly feels very happy that he can do this thing for his family that Eddie cannot. Because in a lot of in a lot of ways, Jen is the black Lorelai Gilmore. She's poor, quote unquote, with Eddie, but she knows that she asked her father for some money. He's gonna break her off. <laughs> right. Like he's not gonna be happy about it. Like, and Eddie's not gonna be happy about because Eddie's very prideful. Um, and he's not gonna be happy about Jen asking, but you know, they'll do it if they have to. So something that had happened in the earthquake was that. Uh, Charles's stepfather had come back and uh, during the earthquake this fridge and like or like a like I think a wall and a fridge like fall on him and like crush him yeah and, it's just a fridge um, and other debris like uh, crush him and they sort of just like but he's alive and they sort of just like leave him there to die which is like really aggro which is so yeah it's really aggro but like because i'm like yikes those two those two cannot keep a secret to save their lives but um you mean cassie can't keep a secret to save her life charles was keeping his mouth shut just fine you guys um (laughs) cassie cannot cassie doesn't even know what that is to be hard for like two seconds she like cannot deal um so she's like sort of but like she's um, breaking under the weight of the uh, subsequent investigation into Max's death. Nobody gets picked up, but like, my God, it's ridiculous. Right. Uh, they are questioned. They do get their houses searched, and you know, eventually the charges are dropped. But like, when this was happening, like high key, I was Team Charles because the reason he died and the investigators say this is not because the fridge fell on him necessarily. I mean, that helped, but because at the time when the fridge fell on him, he was holding a knife that he was threatening them with. Okay. And when the fridge fell on him, the knife plunged into his lower abdomen. That's what killed him. And that's why, because he had the knife was the reason Charles didn't want to help him. And I was very much team Charles on that. I'm not going to get the fridge off the guy who was just threatening to slit my throat. Sorry. Right. Um, Cassie does not feel like she's like, he's a person <laughs> like who lived, <laughs> who tried to kidnap you at prom. But OK, girl, 
Um, so she's not particularly with that line of thought, but she, to the point where she, she can't even keep their story straight, but eventually she does, you know, pull it together, I guess. Um, and, and does what she needs to do. Like we said, Chadwick Boseman is, is Nate, which is cool to watch. Also Tyler Posey shows up this season, which is nuts. Also the guy who was Paolo and Lizzie McGuire is, is in this season, from like mm-hmm. the Lizzie McGuire movie, he shows up. All these fun people show up. But Tyler Hawkland from Teen Wolf also shows up. He's Sage's boyfriend in this season. And then we see very briefly uh, a, a very young, a super young Kofi Surabo, um, who will go on to be on Queen Sugar. And then Lee Thompson Young. We see Lee Thompson Young, which, oh, mm-hmm. which is it's always bittersweet to see Lee Thompson Young in things. It is R.I.P. This season, so this season was super aggravating for me where Jen was concerned. So we learned last season that Nate is Eddie's son. And Tay's taking it badly, which is understandable because he went from being the only son to the youngest son. Um, Eddie's trying to bond with his son and not necessarily make up for lost time, but have a relationship with the son that he'd been deprived of for all these years. And Tay's not taking it well. But Tay's a teenager. I expect that behavior. Jen, however, was super aggravating. There's even one instance in episode two where she chastises Eddie for being too buddy-buddy with Nate. Like, he cannot, he cannot like, interact with his son or be affectionate towards him in front of Tay. And really, that's just a projection of her own feelings about Dana. And she's using Tay to justify those feelings. Right. But I also think that's, I don't know, that feels very Jen. It, oh, it's very real. It's very Jen. It's, it's just super aggravating. To watch. It is. It's, it's aggravating, but it, um, it's, it feels super Jen. And, and I don't, and I think that's something I, I just don't think she anticipated that like a blended family would be something that she would have to deal with. And now here it is. And it manifests in her sort of aggravation with Nate Ray, but I think it's also, I think her aggravation in Nate Ray is also a manifestation of her sort of classism that she feels because once again, it's like, she's, she's permanently tied to, to Dana and Nate and Jerome. And that is something I think that eats at her. That's another plot that sort of comes back around is Jerome is starting to get into trouble in term uh, around the neighborhood in that he's, you know, hanging out with the wrong people. He's not doing what he says he's going to do. He's, you know, staying out till the streetlights come on and, and he's so young. And so Dana, I think talks to Eddie um, and is like, you know, can Jerome hang out with Tay? Tay is a good influence. And, Eddie wasn't even sure why they stopped hanging out. And Jen is like, oh, I said that they couldn't. Um, And Eddie's like, you know, why? And she goes, well, he's a bad influence. Like, I don't, he doesn't need to be around Tay. And the fact that Jen can't find compassion or can't find empathy for Dana and for Jerome and for Nate is, you know, is part of the course with Jen. Yeah. um, Like I said, Jen is like, for me, like the least likable character on this show. 
um, of the main characters anyway, for this reason. She lacks a lot of empathy. She lacks a lot of compassion. It's very clear that her relationship with Eddie is predicated on the idea that she thinks he is the token of the Lincoln Heights community, that she thinks nothing good comes of this community and her husband is the exception. Right. That relationship is interesting. And seeing her kind of wrestle with her jealousy towards Dana, um, which which is, you know, warring with her classism towards Dana simultaneously, is really interesting to watch. So Jen and Dana have this really great conversation in this season where um, Jerome was over. And um, he was making, Tay was making beats and he, you know, Jerome was helping him make beats and they started rapping and Jen heard what they were rapping about and basically chastised Jerome and told him to be like his older brother, Nate, who had reenlisted at this point. And Dana confronts um, Jen later. It was like, did you tell my son to join the army? He's like, no, I just told him to follow his brother's example. And she's like, you know, how would you feel if Tate went out to, Af- you know, if, if, if Tate went off to Afghanistan to get shot, do you think that's all my kids are good for? Right. Is like holding a weapon and going to fight some war. And this is real because when army recruiters go to high schools and shit like that, they go to low income neighborhoods. They go and target the kids who feel like they have no other option and no way out. And Jen absolutely wouldn't want that life for Tay. So why are you suggesting it for Dana's son? Right. And when Nate does come back and, and Nate, there's this amazing sort of um, PTSD storyline that we follow. But um, another thing, which is great because they shine a light on that. But I think another thing of, um, and I think, and this is not necessarily my, a sticking point that I have, particularly with the show, because I think a lot of other black shows do this, but I would really like to see, and to the show's credit, the fact that Jen and Dana do have that conversation is significant in terms of thinking about what I'm about to say. But I would be interested, I think, in the future of, I think, Black shows divesting from this idea that going off to war or, like, joining the military to essentially, you know, aid and continue a sort of American imperialism is something that equals immediate respectability. Mm -hmm. I definitely think I'd like to see more shows start to divest from that idea. Right. In a smaller sense that some people think that being a cop is respectable, they definitely think that being a soldier is respectable. And it's interesting because when Tay and Jerome were rapping, they were rapping about turf wars and defending your own. Isn't that technically what people do in the army, except they bring the turf war to people in other countries? Like, it's not relegated to your block. This is a global turf war. (laughs) Right. Because the line that we're always fed culturally is that, like, we're we're furthering democracy, but we know that, that that does not that's not really real. There are definitely way more actors and way more uh, reasons of why we're in a place because we're in a place. Because if it if uh, troops being deployed overseas was uh, specifically was always about human rights and furthering democracy and uh, protecting oppressed peoples, like we would be in a lot more places um, and we uh, would, and we would not be concentrated in, in the areas I think that we're concentrated in all that to say, um, I just want us to divest from, from American imperialism being like respectable. That's it. That's all I have. I do as well. We can see why a drive-by is such a horrible crime 
then why do you not see why, like, for instance, shooting up a neighborhood in Iraq or dropping drones in Afghanistan is not a crime of the same impact to those people, right? Part of the machine is to dehumanize your opponent, which is a tried and true gang tactic. Everybody that's in your gang is worthy and everyone else is just other. They don't matter. Um, we need to come to terms with how, you know, it's a lot of the same ideologies and a lot of the same methodologies just on a greater scale. Um, so that's why season four really didn't hit for me because they were two very pro, um, pro military, pro the troops for me. And I think Dana was the only person thinking clearly or saying what I wanted to say in that regard. Like, these young boys from poor communities matter so much more than just to be a pawn in someone's war. Um, so I said this before, uh, I think I've, I said this before in the Gilmore Girls episode, and, and in Lincoln Heights, it still rings true. One dead white uncle, one one white daddy can like change your whole fucking future. You just need one. You just need one. Um, and we see that with Charles, who finally figures out who his father is this season and he goes out there and it turns out rich as fuck rich as fuck <laughs> right he was he would have been content with just anybody but this dude got money you guys he got money and he's got a lot of it um okay. only problem is he embraces charles in their home but then tries to pass off charles as his nephew when they're out and about and you know it takes a while but by the end of the season he comes around and gap is a bridge and it's not just charles um essentially having the suttons as a surrogate family but having a family of his own like a biological family of his own other than his mother which is something that his character truly needed and was hungry for right cassie is like hard for like the first time in her whole life um or I don't know like not hard but just definitely like does what she wants to do I think for the first time and when they sort of like you know because Charles doesn't want to go alone understandably he and he doesn't have a lot of support systems in his life like she's kind of the only one and even then she's Cassie is very much I think about you know her own shit but he Charles is like please like come with me. Like I don't want to be by myself when I go meet them. And she, she does, she goes and she gets in trouble. <laughs> Eddie is like, get your ass back to this house. And she's like, uh, I'll see you when I see you. When it doesn't go right. And, and it, and he needs to leave. She, she goes back and she gets him. Um, and wild enough, we see Eddie like stand up for Charles. So like, that's, that's really cool to see, I think as well. Um, Mm-hmm. He stands up to Charles's father. Uh, so something else I want to talk, just touch on in regards to Charles Land is, so when Charles meets this family, he realizes he has like a half brother who, you know, grew up in all this wealth and privilege. And when they return to Lincoln Heights, um, a couple of episodes later, uh, his brother comes and his brother comes to slum it essentially. And it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, once again, this show, so ambitious. Uh, because it's a it's fascinating to watch the dynamic between them, to really see that sort of characterization in that Charles 
takes the Suttons, takes product. I don't want to say it's predominantly black because I think the show does take pains to show that like black people live there, Asian people live there, like Latino people live there. It's very much, it's probably predominantly black and Latinx neighborhood. Charles takes this neighborhood very seriously. He takes the people who live here, live in Lincoln Heights very seriously. Um, He takes his community really seriously. And of course, Charles's brother doesn't. Um, and it's and it's an interesting dynamic to to see and to watch the fact that this brother uh, doesn't and is just sort of play acting in in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Charles's half brother is definitely the epitome of white privilege and like the sort of way that white people like to play tourist in um, communities of color. And that was, I think that was a great episode and a great message to have. But overall, aside from this, I actually really like the relationship between Charles and his brother, who clearly like actually does want to get to know him and doesn't feel threatened by him in the way that Nate felt threatened or that Tay felt threatened by Nate. And you can see a, a, a burgeoning relationship there that's really, really great. But by the end of the season, Charles is enlisted in the military. And like Alex said, it only takes one rich daddy. His dad tells him, I can get you out of that, boy. Don't worry. I'll get you out of that military thing and give you some money from school for school. You're good. It's fine. <laughs> right. It's fine. And, and that saves him. Um, that's nuts. Uh, um, oh, also. But speaking of money. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, speaking of money, um, we meet Cassie's super rich aunt in New York. Naomi. Naomi. Naomi isn't rich of her own accord. Um, she just has a really great sugar daddy. And and Naomi's a woman who makes it clear that she doesn't stick around with any man for long and she doesn't she doesn't like suffer men who aren't useful to her. Now the Naomi storyline is interesting, just that the character exists because we meet Jen's other sister, Vera, in season one, um, who has the same mother and father as her. But Naomi, when Naomi's introduced, she's introduced as Naomi Bradshaw, Jen's half-sister. This is never even mentioned in the parents' relationship. But, like, why does Jen's father have an outside kid? And she's clearly an outside kid because she's younger than Jen, Right. Right. So so this is a child conceived when Jen's parents were still married. They had a whole plot line when Jen's parents were potentially getting divorced and things like that. And like it was never once mentioned that either of them had had an affair. They could have made Vera literally anybody else. I think it would have been better to make her Jen's co- like close cousin because just making her um, Jen's half sister retroactively assassinates her parents' relationship. But Vera is really glamorous and she's very cosmopolitan and she's been all over the world. And she essentially tells Cassie, girl, you need to dump your high school boyfriend. Which, you know, (laughs) although I, although I personally root for Cassie and Charles, you know, fair, fair for a lot of reasons. (laughs) And she does state those reasons very clearly. She's like, you know, and yeah, to her credit, she makes Cassie think about some hard things and some hard choices. You know, she goes, what is he planning to do? Like, what is he planning to be? And, you know, Charles doesn't have a plan. <laughs> um, uh, Cause you know, the design thing blew up. So he, and I guess he was so, the show doesn't uh, show you that he was super despondent. I guess you just sort of infer that he was, that he just sort of, his plan is to just be wherever Cassie is. And, you know, 
to her credit, her aunt is like, you know, you can't have somebody like that. That's only going to, that's only going to be a burden on you later. Um, you need somebody who has their own ambition and, and wants to do something and, and is looking for something more. Um, and ambition, not even meaning to be just like, for me personally, ambition, not even being rich because money isn't everything, but ambition in terms of they want something out of their life. They're looking uh, for whatever it is that's going to sustain them mentally and, and physically and, and, and emotionally. Right. Exactly that. Um, Vera's right about a lot of things, but I think the more it's, it kind of reminds me of Bill's relationships with his wives and big love. The more people say like they shouldn't be together or they can't be together, the more Cassie and Charles want to be together. Um, now, one of the major things that happens with Charles this season is that he actually returns the money that he stole, um, um, to Eddie, uh, or, or to the family. He leaves it in a bag on their doorstep and Eddie being the kind of guy he is takes it to the police to investigate. And he later realizes because of the red dust from the money that it came from their addict and that Charles stole it. Charles later admits to stealing it without Eddie having to ask him, which to Eddie is a big deal that he would come clean. Um, but that's when Sid Glass re-enters the picture, which I thought was a really, really great subplot. Right. So, yeah, Sid re-enters and we get the sort of conclusion of Sid plot with of the Sid plot in this house and which is amazing. And it's not even really when Sid re-enters. I think there's an earlier episode where there's a woman who is clearly in the throes um there's yeah, there's a woman who's clearly in the throes of like Alzheimer's um dementia who is just who somehow gets into the house and she's just sitting in there and everybody's mm -hmm. like, who is this person? <laughs> um, right. And it turns out to be Sid's great aunt Hazel who has right. dementia. Right. And they're like, who, who's this random ass person sitting in our house? And they all come to realize she has dementia, but she starts sort of spilling the secrets of this house um, or starts spilling the beginnings of the secrets of this house. And, and then Sid comes back and Eddie and Sid work together to figure out what happened to the house, what happened with the money. And they come to discover that way, some way back, not way back, but like either her, cause the, the woman with dementia, Sid's great aunt, Mm-hmm. So right. yeah, like two two generations, generations ago. Before, yeah, two generations ago, somebody the like the small girl, there was like they had bought this house and um back then the the, the house was in a predominantly white neighborhood and so someone came and burned a cross in the yard and the great aunt's um sister died and the money was like given to them uh, essentially is like blood money to be like, Oh, like your person's dead, but like, here's some money and it never. And then, you know, the show is like, there's just, there was just like a generational curse on the house because of it. Right. So Hazel's sister, um, Sid's other great aunt, Minnie, um, when the, they burned the cross in this lawn, I guess she went outside and her dress caught fire and she caught fire and died. And so they gave this family $100,000 basically out of white guilt um, that 
the the family never spent and kept in the attic that Sid's great grandfather kept in the attic, and so um, this money does belong to her family, and we get to the whole story behind that. We learn that one of Eddie's mentors was actually um, one of the men responsible for this, right? And he does all this work for the community now, probably to assuage his conscience, but he still hasn't grown out of the racist mindsets. He still feels um, like what they did was, well, not necessarily justified, but that it was no big deal. And um, um, he's arrested. When Eddie realizes that this money does belong to Sid's family, he doesn't hesitate to give her all of the money, um, which is significant, right? Most people would have been like, listen, finders keepers, bitch, I'm out. Um, but he gives her the money back and she does him one better. She gives him, she returns half the money to him. Which, like, I think is, I would not, that it would not have been me, but good for her. <laughs> right? I'm like, she really is the g- wonderful person that Eddie said she is. Because he said, like, she's a good person. She's just down on her luck. But when she gave them $50,000, I was like, sis, you are better than me. <laughs> it wouldn't be me. Like, too, too particularly, good for this world. particularly since she's, like, she's been incarcerated. So, like, <laughs> her shit is much, like, you know heavier and more difficult than theirs is like she needs probably every penny of that money right it's gonna be an uphill battle for her to get a job or anything like that so you need every penny that you can you can you can save and then the suttons pay it forward once more um when eddie and jen decide to give some of the money to dana to get um jerome who needs to be in a private school or else he's going to be recruited into a gang off the streets and basically jen basically starts treating them like family um she basically comes to this epiphany that she's been petty when nate ray is injured and she reads his letter from afghanistan or iraq where he basically calls her a second mother and expresses his thanks to her and she realizes how petty she's been and, you know, does what she can for Jerome, who is his other younger brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the great part about this this story that, like, although I don't think is realistic, but I, I like in the sense of, like, um, it feels good. And I think it's a, a fitting ending is that the the man who who did burn the cross in the yard um, is arrested. He's, like, and he's, like, and even more so, he's, I think, the sergeant, like, chief of police of like everybody or some big like sort of police position he does get like arrested and goes to jail for for that that crime which is is Mm -hmm. really feel i it feels really good right and the irony is that this man was the one who was leading the empathy program that eddie had at the middle school remember so that for me was like the true irony that he would lead a program like that but never come to terms with or be held accountable for what he did was mind-blowing but not surprising another smaller subplot in season four that i truly truly love is with this young girl named brianna eddie finds her in this abandoned home takes her to the hospital and she ends up being taken in by Miss Munoz, um, the woman who lost two children in season three. Um, this little girl was friends with her youngest son 
And when Brianna's mother is, um, you know, gone and she realizes Brianna's mother has died, she doesn't have any family left in the world, and Miss Munoz doesn't have any family left either, they basically become a family for each other. And it's so much different, right, than this girl going into foster care and being placed with whomever. She knows this woman and feels comfortable with her, and they already had a relationship, and they kind of give each other the family that they lost, which I thought was really beautiful. Right. Um... Right. And, and there's some other stuff that happens in in season four. There's like this, there's like this Robin Hood plot where like, uh, they're like, I don't know, they're, they're stealing and giving food to poor people, um, which is really great. It's a, it's a really great sort of like redistribution of wealth thinking plot. Um, there's also like this musical that happens that's, uh, that I think is really silly, but, uh, is interesting, for just the reason of thinking about uh, thinking about the difficulties that like communities of color have with each other, um, specifically black people and Latinx people, um, that's interesting. And it, but it, and it happens primarily between Lizzie and, and Tyler Posey, uh, and yeah, Lizzie and Andrew's relationship was super cute, and. I mean, I honestly really loved the whole musical plot because I thought it, Lizzie was overdue for something lighter. Um, her sub, her plots throughout the seasons have been really, really heavy. She needed something light. It, it's a musical, but it's age appropriate. Lizzie can sing and Lizzie can dance. And it's nice to see like a happier Lizzie. And Lizzie eventually starts dating Andrew, and they're super cute together. It's very entertaining to watch. And it reminds me that this is ABC Family. <laughs> No, yeah. Um, this is one of the lighter plots that Lizzie's given beyond the sort of day that, like, she, Devin, and Tay skip school, which is fun. Uh, that's also a really fun episode where they skip school. Because <laughs> she ends up, like, doing her, like, costume. Like, she ends up, like, fashioning her uniform to look like um, the Britney Spears video, which is really fun mm. and really cute and really sweet. And, and Tyler and Lizzie come together in, in the same episode where Mrs. Hammond and Eddie's dad come together. So that is also really sweet. And it's great yeah. to see yeah, Mrs. Hammond find love again as an older Black woman uh, with Eddie's dad. Yeah, it's nice to see Spencer Sutton actually like move on to because he's been grieving Eddie's mom, Cassandra, all these years. And so like they're both they're both widow widows. Um, and so they have this like coming together. Lizzie and Andrew is just really cute. Like he's like the best of, you know, the best qualities that you would want in like your middle school boyfriend. Andrew's mm-hmm. mad cute. <laughs> series ends with uh, Cassie and Charles getting practice married. Like they had planned to elope, but then they decide not to elope. But then Charles's mother hit up his father for a plane ticket because she didn't want to miss her son's wedding, which technically she would have missed anyway if they actually had eloped at City Hall. But they have like a practice ceremony at home with the family. And it's cute without being like, what the fuck? You don't get married at 18. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. I, I think it's supposed to it's supposed to be like a mirror of like Jen and Eddie because they also got married that young, they also got married super young. Um, but uh, yeah, it's nice that it's a practice wedding that it's like a we're getting married eventually. 
type joint. Like, personally, I wouldn't have minded if it was a real wedding, except that her dress and especially that veil thing were hideous. So I'm glad that that was a practice ceremony and that you'll have better pictures to show your kids from, like, a real ceremony. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Her <laughs> was really ugly. So, um, yeah, and season four is is good for me still, even with the, even with this the military plot that I didn't particularly care for. Season four was actually um my um yeah season four was actually my least favorite season and and that's because of the heavy like military subplots but even that season was really good we even wrap up things with our nemesis bishop who returns in season four um and is taken out and so we kind of feel like that last vestige of of direct threat to the family is gone and we like the audience and the family can breathe freely now um a lot of great things happened for lizzie season four which is the reason why i'm gonna say season four was good and lizzie has like an emotional goodbye to johnny and the ghost of johnny and moves on with her life which i thought was really great closure for her character lizzie needed the win you guys (laughs) there is so much that i think culminates in season four i think season four we really come full circle with everything that the show introduced us to. So that's why I feel like, like you said, with Bishop, with Gla- with Sid Glass and in the house that they're living in, with, with Cassie and Charles, with, with Jen and Dana and Nate and Jerome. Um, I feel like it's all, even Tay, who, you, like, listen, they push Tay's singing career, like, throughout the entirety of this series. And... Tay, and like, then, with and a little then, help from Trey songs and a good <laughs> anthem about the military, very, he went viral, y'all. He went viral, so like, <laughs> oh gosh, Trey songs. Yes, the Trey songs episode. God, um, uh, he went viral, so like we we assume that he he'll have a hit and uh, get a record deal, so a legitimate one this time, and and we're happy. I'm okay. satisfied as a viewer. I am very satisfied. I thought the show gave us serious closure. We even see like Charles's parents have like some type of like reconciliation because she was angry at his father for many, many years, justifiably, um, because his dad was a fucking snob. And they have their like, you know, little come to Jesus moment, like, let's just be here for our son. Jen grows as a person. Tay finally like you know, mends his fences um, with all the petty shit he was feeling towards Nate Ray. There's just so much beautiful closure in this season that I like to see. Um, We dive into, you know, Lizzie and this musical and the Mean Girls, and it feels very, very teen and very enjoyable. And I love everything that happens in season four. It had a lot, like, it had so many, so many great episodes. I couldn't choose a favorite episode of, of Lincoln Heights. I only know that that record executive episode from what season two was wholly unnecessary. <laughs> right. Same. I, I purposefully didn't uh, talk about favorite episodes, favorite episodes um, on this episode, because I really, really, really want to encourage everyone to watch, go watch this in series in its entirety. It's not long. Like I said, it's the episodes are, you know, your standard 46, um, 46, 42 to 46 minutes, uh, without ads, but, um, it is there. These seasons are not long at all. And I really, 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 really want everyone to look at it. It's such a good show. 
like I said, it, like I've been saying over and over, it's so ambitious. It's really well written. It's Eddie and Jenna are excellent actors and actresses, and Lizzie's a good actress, and Tay is, has his moments, and and Cassie is, you know, Cassie. But it's great. It's great. I think it's thinking about a lot of things. I think there's so many elements in this show that are still ripe for exploration and thinking about. Yeah, just, just definitely still there. Still there. Still lots of stuff to think about. Right. Um, yeah, shout out to the cast. Uh, Russell Hornsby, Nikki Michelle, Erica Hubbard. Haven't seen her in much recently, but get those checks, girl. Ryan Nicole Brown. Everybody involved in this show is great. And your girl did the math. Um, at 43 episodes um, with an average um, t- runtime of 45 minutes, it will only take you 32 and a quarter hours to watch this in- series in its entirety. So get on that. Yeah, you spend more time watching like a season of The Crown. I think The Crown one season is, is more time than that. So The what? The Crown. Oh, okay. Probably, yeah, is like that's longer than the entire run of the series. So please go get into it. Get into this show. It's, it's excellent. Um, and, and there you have it, folks. This is everything that we think made Lincoln Heights good, bad, basic, and unforgettable. If you'd like to watch or relive this series, Lincoln Heights is currently streaming on Hulu. Lincoln Heights could have leaned fully into propaganda territory, but chose to steer the boat firmly as a family and community-oriented drama, which had heart, complexity, and constantly growing and evolving characters. We hope that you all have enjoyed hearing our thoughts on this Black All-American classic. Patrons, be sure to check out the GBB Lincoln Heights Spotify playlist. And with this, we officially wrap up the family season of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. Season four, Lights, Camera, Action, premieres next week. Among the shows we'll be discussing are Survivor's Remorse, Instant Star, 30 Rock, and Unreal. Tune in next week when Emma and I will be kicking off the new season with ABC, ABC CMT's musical drama, Nashville. The first episode airs next Thursday. If you want to watch or reveal the series, Nashville is currently streaming on Hulu. Until then, our top-tier patrons can tune in to our new On The Lot series. This is a series where we will be interviewing television writers, show creators, and showrunners, discussing their previous work and any current projects that they have in the works. For our first episode, we'll be going On The Lot with Kathleen McGee Anderson, the executive producer of Lincoln Heights. If you're not on this tier yet, level up. The episode goes live this Saturday. In the meantime, if you'd like to watch or relive Lincoln Heights, the series is currently streaming on Hulu. Follow The Good, The Bad, The Basic on all major podcast platforms to listen to all of our regular weekly episodes on the go. If you love this sort of content and want more, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. Be sure to follow us at Good Bad Basic Pod on Twitter. And of course, follow our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic, where all of our social media links are listed. Until next time. Bye, Bye everyone. everyone.